This is Tony. And this is Matt. And this is What Did We Miss? The podcast where we resolve our pop culture blind spots one episode at a time. That was pretty good. Thanks. I did that from memory. Nice. Yeah. Did you like that or do you want to do it again? Oh, we're rolling. There's no <laughs> going back. <laughs> Before we get into things, at this point, the show has been live for several episodes, so thank you if you've been listening. Um, We recorded a whole bunch early to get ahead of ourselves, hence the um, less than timely uh, discussions of the Golden Globes and Bohemian Rhapsody. Didn't we also talk about snow? (laughs) We talked about snow a few few months after we had stopped getting snow here, but um, that's okay. it was, you know, good planning on our part. Maybe not so much the... Those topics weren't as evergreen as we would have thought as they <laughs> could have been. but <laughs> Just like the topic of uh, Wizard of Oz, the book. It's so topical, always. Oh, yeah. Right? Exactly. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, we, we put out a mini episode on Infinity Gauntlet, which is the, um, you know, the inspiration for Avengers Endgame. And so while we were recording it, um, at the very end of the episode... Basically, unprompted, I just blurted out the probably the biggest spoiler of the whole movie. Yep. Would you say? Right? Yeah, easily. And we decided that it'd probably be best if we didn't put that one out because it was kind of shitty <laughs> on my part. <laughs> right? Yeah. Well, I think you were trying to get some some, some aggression out. There is there is a, a sort of more than ever a fierce um, defensiveness around spoilers um a lot of it not to discredit people wanting to experience something themselves and not have it ruined but there is a sort of manufactured hype machine around it where you know you have the directors of the avengers talking about how they they won't tell tom holland who he's fighting in a green screen because they don't want him to spoil anything and that gets into a whole discussion about it how is that that's not a can't be a a great way to make movies. <laughs> well, here's the thing. They also said that after the second weekend uh, um, of the movie being in theaters, the Russos were basically like, oh, after this weekend, the spoiler ban is lifted. Like it's this thing that they invented. The spoiler ban for this movie is lifted after two weekends. And after that, you're on your fucking own. And on top of that, they premiered the trailer for the new Spider-Man movie, and at the beginning, Spider-Man himself, Tom Holland, says, hey, if you haven't seen Endgame, don't watch this trailer. It's a massive spoiler. And the spoiler, the big one that I revealed, is in the new Spider-Man trailer. Well, I mean, it, and that, that gets into the whole discussion about uh, the pros and cons of a 20-plus interconnected movie franchise, right? <laughs> because sure. that, was, that was the whole thing after Infinity Wars a lot of the the deaths at the end felt hollow because those actors and characters already had sequels lined up. Yeah. And even when we saw Endgame, people were talking afterwards. I heard people saying, oh, how come there wasn't a new Spider-Man trailer? Because <laughs> it would have ruined that big thing three hours before it happened. Uh, yeah, true. But I, I think maybe this is what um, Marvel has done best, maybe, is that they're constantly building this anticipation for the next thing and they're calling all the shots and they're making it seem like if you don't do this if you don't come see our movies right away it's up you're going to be spoiled 
and then it's on you, which I it's kind of weird and kind of shitty. But I think it's also showing it's telling how like look at how much money Endgame is made in in two weekends. And I think it's because there's that perception of just like I don't I don't want to be spoiled at all. And they're con- they're continuing this with Spider Man obviously because now people are like. Once they see that trailer, they're going to be like, oh, man, this is so connected. I need to see this opening weekend or I'm going to be spoiled again. Right. It's such a strange thing because it's not a singular cultural event. You know, think of um, like the Super Bowl or like the World Series. If you're not watching it in the moment, um, there's no such thing as a spoiler in sports. The team wins or they lose. And if you don't see it when it happens, so much of that is ruined, mm-hmm. you know, if, if you're a, a fan. But uh, the Avengers Endgame doesn't change. It's still going to be the same movie. And there's a lot of things that, you know, regardless of if you have the ending spoiled for you, <laughs> you know, there's plenty of other things in there. It's just, it's such a... But isn't that isn't that part of the problem with I guess this kind of spoiler phobia kind of thing is that it's basically saying like if you know these things about the movie then it negates the movie like it takes away the quality of the movie they forced you to have to engage with it immediately yeah and but, it's all but it, I I feel like it all ties into how um, box office results have turned into a kind of uh, a kind of sport almost yeah um, oh yeah. I don't remember unless it was something like Titanic that, you know, was a a, a massive record breaker, uh-huh. as, uh, an unexpected one. On top of that, um, not but now as much every, as in, uh, Endgame, not anymore. But nothing, <laughs> you know. Now everything does such colossal money, and it's I don't know. It's being talked about in weird places. Yeah, it, I don't know. It's strange, but it's like, a, it, it's carrying through with like. Uh, like Game of Thrones too, obviously with spoilers for that show, and 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 they're creating like these like cultural moments around that too, and they're very vague about their spoil their episode descriptions before the episode premieres. Uh, they're uh, this you know the screenshots that they share from this week's coming episode are just people like staring off into the distance. Uh, it's really strange. What what used to be an organic sort of um, growing anticipation for, you know, Game of Thrones or Endgame, those are things coming to an end. So there's a natural excitement and buzz around that. But I can't imagine the Cheers finale having (laughs) having this kind of, uh, uh, like, a guarded uh, sense of, oh, don't, I don't want to know, I can't know a thing. But, I mean, it was different, too. Well, there there was that kind of, I, did it start with Empire Strikes Back? Or at least if it didn't start with Empire, that was a big one because they filmed uh, multiple versions of the big, you know, Luke, I am your father scene, correct? In order to keep it from people because people thought it was Obi-Wan. He said, Obi-Wan is your father. Sure. Correct? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, or like the, they would have scripts that would have, um, the whole production would have a code name. Yeah, yeah. Like Blue Harvest, right? Mm-hmm. I think actually, oh, I read... Um, uh, there's an there's a profile of the Russo brothers in um, uh, the latest issue of Esquire, and I think the code names for Infinity War and Endgames were uh, what was it Mary Lou and Mary Lou Two, as in the gymnast Mary Lou Retton, because as 
Robert Downey Jr. says in the interview, uh, we had to stick the landing. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I can't imagine that somebody is going to see a sign for like, uh, you know, uh, Mary Lou 2 craft service this way, but then see Mark Ruffalo in a motion <laughs> capture shoot and be like, nah, they're probably doing that biopic on that gymnast. <laughs> I guess it's just for like bigger, like, like, you know, people in wherever, whatever town it's filming in or whatever. Maybe sure. it's for the community. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's weird. It is weird. Um, But I mean, I, I can't help but get caught up in, in a lot of it because like I watched the Spider-Man trailer and I'm like, <gasps> he said multiverse. Right. And I'm just like, oh, I, I can't wait to see what happened. Multiverse. Oh my, this could be so many things. Are we leading to the new secret wars? Blah, 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 blah. And I'm just like, just live in the things now. Yeah. They've got the, they've got their hooks in you, Matt. Yeah. Uh, I'm a dummy. Mm-hmm. But like, so, okay. <laughs> <laughs> For instance, you know, there are a lot of, those kind of like big pop culture movies that, you know, there are those big pop culture moments we talk about where there are movies with big, you know, left turns or surprises. But can you imagine like everybody knows what Rosebud is in Citizen Kane, but that doesn't change the, it, your viewing of the movie. No, it doesn't. And, and even watching like something like The Sixth Sense after knowing what the twist is, it, it still works. Mm-hmm. But it, uh, well, what about today? The movie we're talking about today, 1983's *Suburbia*, directed by Penelope Spheris. Now, there's, it has quite a tragic ending. But if I had known that going in, I don't think that would have changed my perception of this movie at all. No, I don't. No, I don't think it would have for me either. Uh, you know, I feel like, uh, just to sidetrack us before we get into it, I know there was a movie recently, where. There is there is some there is something tragic that happened in it, and I feel like the whole time I was just waiting for that thing to happen. Yeah, and I can't remember what it was. Oh, like so, almost as if like if you had known about it beforehand. If the- I hadn't known, I wouldn't have been sort of anticipating that thing. God damn it! I wish I could remember what it was because this is not a very useful anecdote. Um, it was. Was it a horror movie? I feel like I have talked to you about this off mic too, so, and um, now I'm putting Was it, it on you. Cemetery? No. Was it? Uh, this is good radio. <laughs> <laughs> was it? It was Puffin Rock. What? <laughs> it's a show Meg's obsessed with. Okay. It's about these puffins that live on a, a little rock? island off of Ireland, and they all have. Little, they're little. Forget it. <laughs> anyway, it it does and it doesn't. I understand your point. I I knew Rosebud was a sled. It didn't distract me from anything else in Citizen Kane. It didn't get in the way of me enjoying that movie for the first time. Yeah. But there was this recent example uh, that is so burned into my memory that <laughs> <laughs> it must have been a great movie. Oh, it must. Oh, it was great. Yeah, that's right. Um, <laughs> You want to go through your letterbox? <laughs> God damn it. God damn it. Sorry. Uh, 
was was this like a recent or like are we talking years here? <laughs> At this point, I'm thinking it might be it might be years. Uh, yeah, I can't remember. <laughs> That was really funny. <laughs> oh shit! Uh, should we? Uh... No, I'm not. I'm not going to look through my letterbox. It doesn't matter. We're not going to worry about figuring it out anyway. But I know you're, what you're saying, and I think sometimes it can go both ways. Yeah. Um, maybe too, if if in the end it's not uh, if it's not something that holds up outside of that twist. Like if the twist is the thing, yeah, and you know it, mm-hmm. and the rest of it doesn't deliver, it's all in the service of that twist. Maybe like Sleepaway Camp. I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, <laughs> do you want to know the twist of Sleepaway Camp? Uh, sure. Why not? I don't know if I want to spoil it because it's just one of the most bug fuck crazy endings of any movie ever. I'm I'm not exactly sitting on the edge of my seat here, so we'll just put that one on the list. <laughs> The movie is actually interesting, right? But you know what I mean. If it's a shitty movie, but it has like that one, like that gimmick at the end, yeah. Especially if it's not earned, but it's just anyway. On this podcast, we're really good at pulling examples out of thin air. Oh yeah, the recesses of our mind of Mm -hmm. just being like, "Hey, remember this thing?" Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is great. (laughs) This is going really. It's going to win us a potty award. Potty with two D's, not with two T's. Is that kind of like how everyone says uh, Saint uh, Patty's Day instead of Saint Paddy with two D's? Yeah, it's just like that. It's exactly like it's that. just like that. Yep. Okay. Uh, suburbia. Suburbia. Yeah. Are you, so? Tell me, um, what's your familiarity with Penelope Spheris prior uh, to the podcast? Yeah, as I think most people uh, would have the same answer as. As I do here, uh, Wayne's World. She was the director of Wayne's World. Party um, time, it's excellent. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I knew her as the director of Wayne's World. Yeah, but I had always been aware of uh, the decline of Western civilization movies. For sure. There's that one scene in the second one, the Heavy Metal Years, where um, what is it, Chris Holmes or uh, somebody from one of the some hair metal band is just sitting in a pool like drowning in vodka oh, while his yeah, mom yeah, watches, yeah, yeah. which is sort of like a yeah. Uh, a famous yeah but anyway um so yeah i really didn't know it turns out i had seen a bunch of her movies she also directed the beverly hillbillies and little rascals yeah but before we get into what a weird like mainstream turn her career took post wayne's world what what about you what was your familiarity with her yeah i mean i that's the thing with wayne's world is like you know i think i was too young when it came out to really be like Oh man, I can't wait to f- watch all of Penelope Spheres' movies and really only discover that she directed Wayne's World when I learned about decline of Western civilization. Yeah, I think there is certainly a type of movie that it almost feels like the the behind the scenes talent is um, sometimes inconsequential. You know, not to like be dismissive. Because I think, especially having watched Suburbia and the first Decline of Western Civilization documentary, I think there are a lot of things in Wayne's world that work as well as they do because of what she brought 
Yeah, her choices. But you know what I mean? Like, you don't really think about those types of uh, broad studio comedies or especially family and children's movies necessarily having that sort of directorial voice. Like, I remember when I either realized or heard that um, George Miller directed the two Babe movies. Once I was at an age where- Only the second one. He didn't do both of them? He produced the first one. Either way. Sorry. (laughs) Kind of- And Happy Feet. Right, the yeah. the fact that the guy who made Mad Max was making um, a talking pig kids movie yeah. kind of blew my mind. Yeah, and and kind of made me uh, see it differently. Yeah, on a second viewing. Uh, same thing with Wayne's World, I guess. You know, you kind of look at some of the choices that she made that were distinctive. And- right. I mean, the 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 creative personalities that were so associated to that movie were Mike Myers. And Dana Carvey. Yeah. And um, she, I mean, she was, you know, Mike Myers is notoriously difficult. And she said uh, in the past that, you know, he had his idea for doing things and Dana had his idea for doing things. And then Lauren Michaels was the producer who's also this big personality. So it was kind of like, you know, trial by fire for her because it was just her first big budget movie. Uh, and she kind of came in there and had to not babysit, but, you know, had to work with all these opposing forces. A lot of big egos on that. Yeah. She's kind of, I read a recent interview with her and she was talking about like, oh, well, you know, he's no difficult than any other artist. And she was trying to, I guess, be magnanimous about it, distance herself a little bit, you know, from, from saying like, oh, he's this fucking asshole. He's super hard to work with. Yeah. It seems like, um, it seems like tensions have cooled a bit, but he did like fight her over final cut of the movie. And prevented her from directing Wayne's World 2. Uh, so, I mean, so it's very nice of her to be like, ah, whatever, what are you going to do? But, I mean, she has a very um, jaded perspective on Hollywood in general. I had done six films before Wayne's World. Wayne's World was l- lucky or unlucky number seven, depending on the way you think about it. It was lucky in that it was my first studio movie. I got to be in the director's guild. I got to be the Academy of Motion Pictures. I got to be really rich. You know, that's one (laughs) aspect of it. The the other aspect is I could never, in in the studio system, do anything but comedies, you know. And so it's kind of like this first half of her career where she's doing these, like, scrappy punk rock movies. And then the later half where she's doing all these big studio comedies. She did Black Sheep, Beverly Hillbillies, like you said, Little Rascals. Yeah, and Senseless uh, yeah. is really the one that kind of broke her in terms of her, her patience for Hollywood. Yeah, well, and, she mean, had to deal with the Weinsteins, and she said they were... She said that she was too old at the time for them, to, for Harvey to, to come on to her, but it, it was more of an issue of just like, this is our money, and we're going to do whatever we want with it. Yeah, I mean, either way... Uh, Outside of those particular horrendous things, Harvey is is now known to have uh, committed. I mean, the two of them were just uh, the worst. They were just yeah, bullies, and they were just yeah. She said uh, on the commentary track for Suburbia, she said, "I was she's watching it, and and she's basically, wow, I haven't seen this in a while." So there's moments where she's just laughing at it and commenting like, "Hey, that's pretty good," and then she goes. I was a good filmmaker before I sold out, <laughs> which is pretty great. But yeah. after, uh, would you say Senseless? Senseless. After Senseless, 
she was like, oh, I'm, I'm done with the film industry. So let's 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 back up and talk a bit about who she is and then um, her early career and especially about suburbia. Oh, yeah. Yeah. She went to UCLA, did some film stuff there uh, and then worked with a bunch of comedians, uh, worked with Albert Brooks and friend of the pod, uh, Danny DeVito. That's right. <laughs> yeah, she she produced the shorts that Albert Brooks did for SNL for that first season. Uh huh. Um, as well as his his first film uh, feature length yeah, film, Real Life, which is awesome. Yeah, super awesome. Yeah, she also started a, a production company called Rock and Reel, which mm-hmm. was essentially doing music videos before there were music videos. Another thing she likes to bring up a lot in interviews is that people say you have this very MTV style, and and she likes to point out, well, uh, you know, my MTV my stuff predates, my yeah. um predates what MTV was doing. Yeah. I was, you know. After UCLA, she was kind of kicking around the LA punk scene. And then so she just decided, hey, like, I'm here. Might as well film this. That's how Decline of Western Civilization came about. Uh, and so you just watched it for the first time? Yeah, I, I, I watched Suburbia first and then went back and sure. watched Decline. What what did you think of Decline? It was, it was interesting. Yeah. Um, it was a very it was it was really objective you know i think she she neither condemned or condoned really anything that was going on i mean she in suburbia she definitely is very empathetic to the characters yeah um and with decline i think she was honest and and sort of allowed them to speak for themselves in ways that um are jarring yeah, yeah yeah certainly not Flattering in some instances, but but I think, I think that's the quality she took to suburbia too, because and that's why I think maybe suburbia is successful is because while she, there is a lot of empathy uh, involved, these kids are are assholes. Some yeah, some of them were yeah, a lot of them are yeah. Uh, and the, well, with decline. She had a lot of firsthand experience with with these kids, and they trusted her. And I think that's what she brought to suburbia and and the other Western uh, decline of Western civilization movies. They trusted her, um, and so she didn't feel the need to kind of, you know, push them in any direction. They just kind of did their thing. Uh, I think that's what makes them such unique documentaries. You know, one thing that really stands out is how serious the young fans take it and how aware a lot of the performers are of the performance aspect of it. Yeah. And sort of, you know, there is a, there is a bit of a, a line between, you know, what they aren't, aren't taking super seriously, but I mean, the kids are just in it a hundred percent. Um, and sometimes that's frightening. I mean, you, you think about where we're at now, <laughs> Culturally, and there's yeah. a lot of uh, angry young white men. There's a lot of racism and seeing and seeing that and in homophobia. Decline, yeah, it's really. I mean, there's that thirteen. You know, that kid can't be any more than like twelve or thirteen, but yeah. he's, you know, uh, got a really tight cropped head of hair. And, you know, dropping the N word. Yeah. Uh, our kids wearing swastika T-shirts and. Uh-huh. And there's a band at the end, uh, Fear. Yeah. That is just. Laying into the crowd and calling them all, uh, 
I mean, the, the a homophobic slur. Yeah, yeah. And it's really difficult to watch some of it. Uh, she doesn't judge any of them. Like, no, not with her 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 filmmaking choices or or even her interviews because you can hear her voice throughout the whole movie. Mm-hmm. But uh, if it seems like what she did was basically just make suburbia is just a fictionalized version of decline of Western civilization. For the most part, she took a lot of what she was seeing there, took a lot of her own personal life, and she applied it to this movie of these group of punk rock kids that are feeling disillusioned from their home lives uh, and have fled and formed this makeshift family, uh, and they're living in these um, condemned houses, these dilapidated homes that are kind of uh, uh, on the outskirts of L.A., Mm -hmm. Uh, but she also has that same kind of detached um, observational eye in, in suburbia. Those kids are equally homophobic and racist and, and incredibly misogynistic. Sure. Uh, there's a scene early on where uh, one of the, there's a band performing and some of the kids are in the crowd. So there's this one character, his name is Skinner, and he's in this mosh pit and he sees this punk rock girl and he's like hey i want to fuck you and then when she kind of rejects him they, he rips her clothes off and then they kind of like watch as she's being tossed around all these guys in the pit and the band doesn't really do anything about it and yeah. no one does the camera kind of lingers on her for a while it's, it's really difficult to watch it is it is uh it's really upset and it happens almost <laughs> not almost immediately the first <laughs> really difficult <laughs> thing to watch is when a, a baby gets mauled by a dog not to excuse any of this, but to give some context just from interviews I've read with her and stuff I read about the movie. Suburbia was produced by Roger Corman, who we've mentioned in other episodes, and a lot of exploitation and, and schlock with um, with Corman's movies. Yeah, and He kind of gave her an edict that there needed to be some degree of sex and violence. It was like every 12 minutes, he said. Yeah, so, yeah. so uh, there's another scene later when in the in the the house that all the, the, the punk kids uh the TR kids as they're called the uh the rejected the right? rejected yeah when a, a a couple of uh out of work factory workers who they sort of keep crossing paths and bumping heads come into their home in the middle of the night or something and um and then you know tear uh tear the clothes off one of the girls that are there and kind of like you know hold her I don't remember if she was at gunpoint or what, but like they were yeah, they threatening them. Um, so yeah, I mean, so on the one hand, she is sort of putting these exploitative things into it because the producer insisted on it. On the other hand, watching the first decline of Western civilization, I mean, there's kind of a precedent for that type of violence and uh, misogyny. I mean, there's uh, the scene at the end of decline with uh, fear, there's, there's a a woman in the crowd who keeps like really like being kind of confrontational with them up near the front of the stage and gets up and they just, they keep shoving her back. I mean, the ease at which with violence is sort of perpetrated on women. Yeah. In, in both movies is, is startling. Well, I I think that's kind of why it works, you know, like you said, Roger Corman told her, like, hey, you need to include sex and violence. And she kind of, like, does it by rubbing your face in it. Like, she's saying, like, well, this is awful. Like, watch this awfulness. 
I have a quote from her about Roger Corman and, and his ideas of uh, sex and violence. She says, I wasn't happy with that, but I was at least aware enough to know that if I didn't do what he asked, that he would either do it anyway or tell me to go away. And mind you, that was at a point in my career where I really did want to establish myself as a narrative director. I mean, I had done The Decline of Western Civilization, and it was the most written about film of that year. But that's because nobody understood punk rock. Still, I really, I wanted to do narrative pictures, so I had to do what Roger Corman said. So I reluctantly had that scene where the girl gets her clothes torn off, and I reluctantly killed the little girl, very badly, by the way, with the dolls at the beginning of Suburbia. I did that, you know. I also knew, in order to keep going as a director, I had to do what he asked me to do. Which is so heavy. Reading interviews with her and listening to some some podcasts with her, that's kind of the framework of her whole career, of just basically, I, I did what I had to do to get to where I am, but now I'm at a point where I'm like, fuck it, and I don't need to make movies anymore because I don't want to deal with that kind of bullshit. And it's kind of sad because yeah, she makes terrific movies. Yeah, it, it's the audience's loss. It, it really is. I mean, and I, I can't even say it's her loss because she seems, again, in, in these sort of, in these interviews where she's looking back, you know, she'll say things like, I never loved movies, and it doesn't seem like she's resentful of the shit she got while she was doing it, but now she's like, yeah, it's not worth the hassle, and I'm much, I'm happier now, which is great. I'm, I'm glad that at least she's- homes. <laughs> Huh? She builds homes yeah. with her husband, or no, with her boyfriend. Yeah. Uh, that's what she does for a living. I've read it, I've, I've listened to a few interviews where she said that she's has a few documentaries that she's working on, but these were a few years ago and it doesn't seem like anything's to come to fruition. So who knows? I, I hope like something pops up, but uh, she, she still kind of talks fondly about Roger Corman and and like that the sex and violence thing maybe put her off, but she talks about him in terms of like, he was supportive of her and in and, and, and a lot of the choices she was making. Uh, even in some, even though there were some instances where she'd have to push back, like uh, he wanted to call the movie "The Wild Side," and he even did like a like a mock up of sort of yeah. yeah, and asked people what they thought, and she had to fight to call it suburbia because he thought that people would think that was too like ironically detached and that they wouldn't get it. But she said one of the biggest things <laughs> that she learned from him was he said like you should sit down as much as possible, and she's like, "What the hell does that mean?" But she said, "I actually took that." throughout the rest of my career because you're on these sets 12 hours a day and you get exhausted. Uh, so let's, we've talked about a lot of the more sensational elements of the movie, um, you know, some of the uh, the uglier sides of it. But one thing that it has a lot of is it's very empathetic to its characters and very, it's not trying to make an after school special uh, punks or the devil kind of thing. And that, that was really... Yeah. Um, important to her because I think that Corman was maybe looking for that. Yeah. Well, but he didn't understand punk rockers. Nobody did. Yeah. And, I'm, and I'm, not gonna, I'm not going to pretend to either. I mean, trying to do some research into, well, what subsects of punk were, were racist and which ones weren't. And like, it's a whole rabbit hole in and of itself. Yeah. Breaking punk down into its subdivisions. But she understood these these people. I mean, the, none of these were real actors. Yeah. I mean, the only th- <laughs> the closest thing to a real actor was that Flea is in it, and he was like, it was right on the cusp of him sort of becoming the Flea that we all know and love today. It's interesting because uh, 
she had to fight for that because uh, Corman, again, didn't understand. But she said it was easier to have punk rockers be authentic, authentic punk rockers and hit their marks and be actors than it was to get an actor to be an authentic punk rocker. I don't know if she's 100% right. <laughs> like, a lot of it's stilted. There are definitely moments where you can tell the kids are being themselves. Like, she allows them these moments to kind of do their own thing, whether it's Flea putting a, a rat, a whole rat in his mouth, or two of the girls kind of joking around and one accidentally pees her pants. Yeah, like laughing. the guess what chicken, like the when they're like giggling about guess what chicken butt. Yeah. But those moments where they're, and those are some like touching moments when they're rev- a lot, they're putting their, their their punk armor down and they're just being kids. Yeah, it's really genuine. Yeah, it, you know, of course they're not great actors, but I also wonder what caliber of actor would have <laughs> would Roger Corman have hired for this? And yeah, and it kind of goes into the whole the disaffected mentality a lot of them have. So for me, that didn't really get in the way of anything. No, no, I I don't think it got in the way. I mean, there are definitely moments that are like this is you know this is a little clunky. Sure, I actually think Flea probably fares the best. He's really charismatic and he, he steals a few of the scenes. And she talks like, about that. Like, yeah. he, like the camera loves the guy. She's just like, you could tell this kid's going to be a star. I didn't know he's going to be that kind of star, but there was something there about him. The fact that she understood the scene so well does wonders for the movie. Thinking back on that quote from Walter Murch that you brought up when we talked about THX and what he found fascinating about Japanese cinema is that those directors weren't concerned about explaining the culture in their movies to anybody else because mm-hmm. uh, whether they didn't expect them to be seen overseas or that was just their mentality. Penelope Spheris doesn't go to any effort to explain punk culture mm-hmm. at all to the movie's benefit. I think of something like SLC Punk, yeah, uh, which has that montage of like explaining the different scenes like the punks the rednecks the mods the skinheads and like the whole pecking order and like it, it just it go it has to go it go, feels like it goes out of its way to explain punk to people who have no idea of what that subculture is like to i don't know mixed results uh, in hindsight it feels cliche i haven't seen the movie in a while but i was glad to not see any of that even though there's a character evan who you know, he runs away early in the movie and 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 joins the the TR kids. Yeah, his mom's an alcoholic. I mean, she whips a fucking vodka bottle at him. I mean, he's like the that character who doesn't know about the thing and then gets brought into the. Yeah, like he's the hero. like your introductory yeah, yeah. character. He's like the the audience surrogate. Exactly. And you know, there's no scene where he's being walked around the house and oh, that's so and so. They're this kind of punk, and that's yeah. this person, and they're this kind of punk, and. It, it, or like explaining the rules. It, yeah. it just trusts you to care about the characters and what's happening to them, and to pick up the the context along the way. It's funny though. One of the one of the trickier things while watching it is that there are so many of these kids living in this house, and it's hard to remember all their names. But you don't necessarily need to because they're all so distinctive visually. They all have like this different kind of hook to their look, whether it's like. Um, uh, Skinner with his, uh, you know, shaved, shaved head, head uh, or um, you know the Mohawks, and and obviously Flea is has a very distinctive gap between his te- teeth, yeah. and or he's got the rat crawling all over the him. rat crawling all over him, or uh, Sheila, obviously with the short short uh, bleach blonde hair. Um, so it's weird because most movies you 
it's hard to grasp on characters when there's that many of them. But they, she does a very good job of distinguishing, you know, who is who. Yeah, and even outside of the punks, there are a lot of fascinating characters. I mentioned the um, the older, uh, the two unemployed guys who they worked at a, a GM plant that closed, and they're there's a scene where they're having a yard sale, and they're you know one of them selling his his camper because he can't afford to keep it on the road. Jack Diddley, who's like the the lead the leader of the TR gang, his stepdad is a cop, mm-hmm. um, a black cop who. Uh, yeah, it's only worth mentioning that specifically because of the disdain that Jack has when he tells a friend, "Oh, my dad's not just a cop; he's a black cop." Yeah, um, it's and unlike what you'd expect from this kind of movie, he's he's he really comes out uh, sympathetic. I mean, he's you know there are several scenes where he's pleading with the kids that like yeah these uh these older redneck guys are gonna come you know fuck your world up. You guys need to hide. I'm not. I'm not here to take you in or yeah. or call anybody's parents. Like, just go somewhere else. Uh-oh. Or even the a quieter scene where he he tells him, you know, you could come home. Your mom would really like that. Yeah, uh, I actually have that clip. Great, let's play it. So I think it's best for all of you to go back to your homes until this thing blows over. You don't seem to understand. Most of us don't have homes to go back to. My parents are dopers, and the state won't even let me go home. All they do is shove me into foster homes. Let me tell you, that sucks big eggs. What do you do here all day? Nothing. Watch TV. Don't you want to make anything of yourselves? What's to make? Well, there's families for one thing. Careers, college. Families. Everyone knows families don't work. College? Most of us couldn't afford lunch in high school. What do you kids do for money? Take bribes off cops. Please, Mr. Policeman, don't make us leave our home. We'll be good from now on. We promise. Yeah, this is the best home most of us ever had. Besides, if we didn't have each other, we wouldn't have anything. Yeah, I, I mean, there's... I'm crying. <laughs> there's a lot of... Uh, there's, a, there's a lot to be sad about in that scene. I mean, what the kids have gone through. Um, mm-hmm. You know, a father sort of pleading uh, Yeah, with his with his son to to keep him out of harm's way. I think, too, going back to talking about spoilers, and this movie uh, has a tragic ending. It it's, feels inevitable. It's building to it throughout the whole movie. So maybe the spoiler argument for this movie uh, isn't particularly pertinent because it, it does kind of hold your hand throughout saying, like, hey, like, if things continue on this path, uh, it's it's not going to end well. Right. And tragically, it, it happens to the most vulnerable of them. Oh, yeah. Uh, um, so at one point, Evan, um, who's the, like we said, is the, I guess the audience surrogate, goes back home to, to pick up his brother because his mom got picked up because. Uh, oh, she was in a car wreck. Yeah. Okay. Because she was for, she's driving drunk. drunk. Yeah. So, so he goes back to get his brother, and his brother, they bring him in to the. His, uh, his kid brother. I mean, yeah. like. He's what, like eight? I mean, before he gets in the car to leave with him, he says. Don't forget my bike, and they put a big wheel in the trunk. I mean, yeah. he's a really little kid. Yeah, and there's probably there's this great image of him after he goes to the house, and they basically shave a mohawk on him, and he's on his uh, his little uh, big wheel. Yeah, big, there's a couple of scenes, like kind of establishing shots of him just kind of doing donuts in front of this abandoned house. Yeah, and 
I don't know about you, but when I watched that, I was kind of like, oh man, this is that moment when you see him on the big wheel about partway through the movie, you just feel it like, oh, this is not going to end well for this, this little kid. Yeah. Uh, It plays as tragedy throughout the whole thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, And at the end, these two uh, auto work guys basically, they decide to take uh, justice into their own hands because the kids have, you know, they're mischievous and they steal from um, the wealthier community. Yeah, yeah. There's uh, a, a a scene where they're they're cruising around looking for a garages that have their doors open and b if those garages have refrigerators in them. And then they're just raiding the fridge, taking all the food and beer they can get their hands on. Yeah, and and they also go into convenience stores and and just make mischief everywhere. To be fair. One of them had heard that that guy was selling drugs to kids. <laughs> this is true. This is true. And then, uh, so there is there is a justification. Yeah. And again, kind of like in in decline, Penelope Spheris doesn't necessarily condemn or condone what's no. happening, but there's always a reason. There's the, also one character that has uh, his dad is gay, and and they go out of the, their way to make the kids basically be homophobic toward right towards his his gay dad. They're not always good reasons. No. But like the convenience store where they they kind of terrorize the guy. Um, he has a limp and they mock him for that. Yeah, three of them walk into the convenience store and yeah. they mo- they mimic the limp. Yeah, they like dump a, uh, a blue Slurpee into his uh, jar of pickled eggs on the counter. Which I believe was improvised from what I've read. But they heard he was a bad dude selling drugs to kids. Yeah. There's a scene where one of the characters ODs. And they they don't know what to do. So they and again, this is such like a it's a moment where it kind of reveals that they're kids and they're like, well, let's just bring her back to her parents. And they bring the body and then they they go to the funeral to genuinely because they're genuinely sad that their friend has died. And the parents are like, look, we don't want you here. You got to leave. And they argue that they have every right to be there. And then a, a fight breaks out that does the girl's father throw the first punch because it ends up that they're the the word gets out that this gang of punks i don't uh, think like so. raided uh a funeral and, and caused yeah. a scene so there is this this sort of constant idea of of other people's perceptions of punks and as opposed to you know we're getting the chance to see things happen as as they perceive it as well yeah she gives them like these weird sort of justifications for their behaviors but then it, they end up crossing the line like that funeral scene is essentially you know, the father asked them to leave and he has no reason and they have every right to be there, but they just feel uncomfortable with the kids there and then the kids get rowdy. Yeah. So at that point, it's just like, oh, well, this is why they didn't want you there. But the only reason that happened is because they tried to kick him out. So that's kind of happens throughout the whole thing. I wanted to backtrack just a sec because my favorite shot of the whole movie is uh, all these punk rockers on the front lawn they're holding their friend Sheila's dead body on the front step, and it, the way it's framed is just absolutely beautiful with this picturesque suburban home. Sheila clearly, her family clearly had some some money, uh, and all the kids are framed individually in the bottom third. You could see every single one of them. It's just a beautiful composition. That's how the fight started, because her dad was abusive. Oh. I and, and she tells that awful story about how, what it boils down to is, he never raped me, but I think he beat me so that he wouldn't have to. It's like kind of how she yeah. phrased it. Like there was just this, this gross, awful malignance in her father, and he like he just took it out by like. 
beating the shit out of her. What's and that's and then at the funeral, you know, they they you know that he accused her of being dead because she was hanging out with these punks, and they were like, "Fuck you, she's dead because you made her kill herself." Yeah, the scene where Sheila admits about her father abusing her is also interesting in that. I forgot the name of the character that she tells it to. Oh, she tells Joe. When she tells this to Joe, he basically says to her, like, yeah, that's kind of what I thought. Like, as if, like, he accepts her and also that he understands that most of these kids in there have, have come th- from similar backgrounds. Yeah. But what, And then the tag at the end is they just kind of look at each other and they just start making out. <laughs> so it's just a really fascinating scene. A lot of layers there with both of their reactions and and the outcome of it Uh, essentially basically like well this is life let's get back to it Mm -hmm. so then after the funeral like these two out of work guys they take some guns and they they go into this abandoned home where the where the tr gang is kind of residing and they threaten them uh and the kids fight back and then once they try to leave they're in their car and then they start to you know they charge them essentially and then the kids run out of the way. You can see um, Evan's little brother on on his big wheel, and and they run him over. And it's a gruesome scene. Like his head hits that windshield, and uh, oh yeah, she makes you stick with it. Yeah, and it lingers on his face in the the glass, and it's it's really it's tough to watch. And that's just how the movie ends. One point I I started to make, and then kind of bailed on it when I got excited about something else was about these two out of work dudes who are constantly butting heads with the punks and what I think is fascinating about them and probably why she really wanted to keep the title suburbia is that they're just another representation of this sort of um, American dream that never came true these are also angry guys who were under the impression that if they lived life a certain way they they worked hard they were gonna you know get the you know the perfect life the you know the house the wife the the kids the whole thing but then they lose their job and they're just miserable and sitting around getting drunk all the time and picking fights with teenagers again not to not to say that that's uh, that I sympathize with them because again they're picking fights with teenagers <laughs> but uh it, it all kind of plays into this uh 80s aura of of uh, of of stuff just kind of falling apart and this this disenfranchisement with things that are happening beyond our control. You know what I mean? She said in the DVD commentary track that to her, it was more interesting to give these people, even though they're ostensibly the villains to give them some sort of backstory, even if it's just a little bit, because she said that's what made things interesting to her. That coupled with the idea that she likes this idea of the urban myth, there's part reality and part urban myth. And that carries through to, the two out of work guys actions and also the punk kids actions. Everyone is mythologizing each other and kind of reading into things a little bit more. Sure. Uh, and, and maybe what she's saying is like, maybe if everyone had a little more compassion then this wouldn't happen. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That comes through really clearly. And you know, uh, they could have just as easily been a, a couple of generic rednecks. Yeah. But just giving them that, that humanity makes them more compelling villains. So, Let's talk a bit about the the actual filmmaking. I think one of the, the things that caught me at first was that, you know, there are actual live performances from some punk rock bands in this in this movie. Uh, the Vandals. They're the only one I knew by name going into it. But I was familiar with the Vandals from 15 years later, which was much more like goofy. Yeah. Uh, almost pop punk. And then there's T.S.O.L., which I'm not really familiar with either. 
and D.I. But she films them the same way she filmed the music scenes or the bands in Decline of Western Civilization. She kind of lingers on the performers, a lot of long takes, uh, basically sort of handheld with someone on stage. They're lit exactly the same way. It doesn't look like it's like an actual club. It's like lit. It's way too bright. It's really bright. <laughs> uh, I think it's due to maybe the limitations and the budget. Her, it's a very low budget movie and the documentaries are as, her documentaries are as well. And so she just put up a bunch of big spotlights essentially and kind of filmed things. And it kind of makes it work for the most part because you could see every detail and these kids are gnarly. Like they're just blemishes and pockmarks and cuts and scrapes and bruises and like she doesn't hold back like you can see everything with these kids they don't look like sanitized like, no these these are not people made up to look like punks they were yeah they're these straight are, off the street yeah uh so that was one of the things that caught me uh, and then she makes excellent use of the spaces that she's filming in and the homes that they filmed in for um the tr's uh, home base i guess were actual houses that were being cleared away for highway. And so she took use of these dilapidated houses and, and, and vacant homes. It's great because like there's a lot of light peeking through and there's a lot of holes in the walls. So there's a lot of texture to the lighting. Um, it's really quite, quite lovely, these scenes. And she said they allow a lot of the garbage to pile up throughout filming. So by the end of it, it was just the garbage was authentic and it also smelled just absolutely awful. <laughs> but I, I, I also have this little clip where she talks about uh, kind of her filmmaking style. I make the cuts really, really rough and loud and abrupt and rude. And yeah, so she's, she's talking a lot about you know, she doesn't linger on things for the most part. Like when there's cuts, uh, it's always kind of jarring and abrasive. Yeah, I, I, the style of the film is part and parcel with the whole punk ethos. And I think yeah. it's there to serve the purpose and it's not flashy. It, I mean, it feels very honest and real. There's a lot of it that's, there's so much overlap between the first decline of Western civilization and this uh, from her filmmaking and the way she... Uh, you know, communicates to the actors or non-actors uh, and her subjects. Uh, uh, that's why I said in the beginning that this is essentially like a fictionalized version of the first Oh, absolutely. Movie. What's it, really interesting is that Suburbia is pretty prescient in that the third decline of Western Civilization movie is all about these homeless punk rock kids. And this came out in 1998, and she self-financed it with money she made from her, her big Hollywood movies because no one wanted to make it. Uh, and it follows a bunch of these homeless punk rock kids, and some of them are drug addicts, and it's the most difficult to watch of the three uh, Decline of Western Civilization movies because uh, these kids are, are, are really struggling, and she's actually trying to help them, and, and a lot of them, you know, I, I believe there's one kid that dies throughout the, the, the course of the movie. Yeah, I, I think, and what's interesting too is to try to trace if there's a direct through line from suburbia to decline three what i've found interesting is trying to find the through line to some of her studio work isn't it, the little rascals really just a stealth sequel to suburbia <laughs> <laughs> i i've i've you're not the first person to <laughs> speculate yeah, I that know. um i know she the way i think that's her strength really 
you could take those two movies and they're seemingly so disparate, but the way she communicated with the her actors in Suburbia, and in both cases, like in Little Rascals, they're all seven years old. They'd show up to set every day and she would hug every one of them before they would start shooting. And you hear interviews with her and it just seems like she really enjoyed being around these kids and she had a fuck ton of patience because most of the time they would just look right into the camera. Yeah, there is one anecdote from an interview where she said what she realized is they were seeing their own reflection in the lenses. Yeah. So then they they would have a prop person bring a mirror on set just out of frame where she wanted the kids to look so that if they weren't looking at their co-star like they were supposed to be, at least they could just be looking at their own reflection and not looking at it in the lens. Thinking about Wayne's World is almost, it's almost like the flip of Suburbia. It is these young adult men who have sort of been, who haven't been pushed out of their homes. They've been allowed to stay in them and allowed to continue to be children. Uh, and it also has that kind of the, a little bit of the the sheen of more uh, the more hair metal kind of scene that was in Decline, Decline Two. Yeah, and that said, I mean, the, they could have all been completely obnoxious man children, but she found the 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 empathy there and and what made them fun as opposed to obnoxious or or something to be mocked because they're not exactly. I mean, watching Wayne's World now, it's kind of the joke too. They're not particularly cool, no. but. Um, they're also not, you know, within the logic of the movie, they're they're not nerds either by any means. No. So it's it's interesting that it is so artificial, uh, but maybe her whole thing works with that because it's, I mean, that's that's kind of the punchline. Yeah. Well, I know you haven't watched it yet, but I do think that you should watch Decline Two, uh, which is the me- the the Metal Years is its subtitle, I believe, and you could see why she was chosen to do Wayne's World after that because. That movie, again, because of her reputation, they had this implicit trust with her that she was going to set up these cameras and let them do their thing. And because of that, you have these really ridiculous hair metal guys that are saying just insane things. And they're just these ego-driven maniacs uh, that have have too much money, are probably idiots, (laughs) and she just allows them to be idiots. Uh, And there's a little more judgment, I think, in, in metal, too. Um, only because it's hard not to, <laughs> the way she frames things. Yeah, she definitely recognizes who gets it and who doesn't. Kind of like yeah. in Decline 1 with like that line between being in on the joke and, and taking it completely seriously. Yeah. As ridiculous as a person like Ozzy Osbourne is, is he always seems like he's kind of in on it. Whereas, you know, with the guys from Kiss, I guess, I think Paul Stanley is interviewed like in his bed just it's surrounded amazing. by models. So that's, that was his choice. It's an overhead shot, and I believe the bed is rotating. <laughs> she asked, how do you want to be filmed? And he said, yeah. in a bed full of hot chicks. Yeah. And she's like, They have oh, no right. self-awareness. Yeah. No self-awareness, yeah. <laughs> I think she she that's the only one that she's expressed a little bit of reservation about. I think some of the producers were like, yeah, this is the angle. And she was just kind of like, because that's her whole point. It's like, well, I'm not judging anybody. Mm-hmm. You can't help but judge some of these people because, like you said, there's that dude that's in the pool that's just kind of chugging uh, vodka or something like well, that. Well, his mom watches, right? Yeah. Although, I in a recent interview, I she did say that it was pool water that he was drinking, and they kind of faked it. <laughs> so I think that was revealed on the, the 
because there's recently um, Shout Factory put out the the uh, Blu-ray box set for the Decline of Western Civilization trilogy. And to go back and address some of the seedier elements of the punk scene from Decline One, there was an interview I read where she was asked explicitly about the racism and stuff, and her explanation is that well, I was I was really kind of unaware of this whole skinhead thing that was happening in the scene. And then when she did Decline Three in the late '90s, uh, she said that she like I wanted no, I didn't want them in my movie. I made a point not to sort of show that. So it is interesting that she's very much not judging her subjects as she's filming. Uh, she did develop sort of a keener awareness to to things that she didn't want to glamorize in future films that explored this. And um, you know, I guess in some sense passed a judgment. But I guess if you're trying to paint a, a sympathetic picture of these homeless kids, uh, you know, having a, a homeless Nazi who they hang out with probably wouldn't be the best bet. So maybe not showing that in Decline 3 <laughs> is a good thing. Yeah. I mean, it's tough because, you know, viewing it viewing it now, it's easy to be like, oh, wow, yeah, these people are, are, are monsters. Um, and it's hard to imagine a movie like Suburbia existing now because she, – like the characters uh, have some unredeemable qualities. That poor naked girl that they torture in a public place. I wonder if a person wanted to make a film like Suburbia now, if that scene they were examining would be different. I mean, I, you know, from sort of observing the, the music scene in Providence, every once in a while, like my social media feed will sort of spike with uh, this very loud conversation about, you know, something shitty may have happened at a show and this sort of rallying behind the incident. Like, we don't want this here. We're, we're like, there is a sort of self-policing. So I wonder yeah. if the, the 2019 version of that would have, if that scene, like if that girl had her clothes torn, if that scene would have ended with a, you know, a bunch of people beating the shit out of the person who did it. Yeah. I th I, and I think in general, the, the, the larger conversation, because I think, I think it's hard to separate that misogyny from from that community at the time. But now I, I don't think I, I think it's sort of started to separate itself. And I think there are different cliques and different circles that for sure um, that won't stand for it. Yeah. And I also think well, the big difference now is I think there are cultural critics that want to see artwork have a clear message or, or to to say if it does depict some some moment like that that the point of that scene is to say this is bad. And I think that's the difference is like with these with the decline early decline movies and suburbia is that she's not actively pointing to you and saying like look I'm passing judgment on these people. You saw this recently with Wolf of Wall Street where a lot of people took issues with it uh, you know the debaucherous kind of behavior of these characters a lot of people had to come to its defense saying like, you know, depiction is an endorsement. So if you're watching this and you can't, if you don't clearly see that this is an awful thing, you know, if I'm not underlining it for you, do you, like, why do you need it underlined? Why do you need us to point this out that this is bad? That is something I've kind of noticed a lot lately where we, we, a lot of people need these things to be expressly pointed out that it's a bad thing. Sure. And that's one thing I was looking for is, as I was reading interviews or, or reviews of Suburbia and Decline after watching them, I was going straight to the comments just to see what the discussion around it was. And a lot of, you know, a couple of times I saw something to the to the effect of, oh, you know, fuck her. She's just as complicit in 
sort of the misogyny and the bullshit that was happening by by not speaking out against it, a lot of the counter arguments were, well, she's not ignoring it either. I mean, it was, you know, especially in a documentary, it's it's there and it's happening. And yeah. if the point is to show this scene warts and all. And now there's a whole, that's a whole conversation about responsibility of an artist, right? I yeah. mean, what sort of... Uh, you see this conversation around Game of Thrones where there's a lot of rape on that show. They use it sometimes as a... As a, a plot mo- crutch. Yes, or a motivation for a character instead of really explaining or digging into it why it was awful for the character. You know, like it's like in order for a character for, to get from A to B. And I think people take issue with that because it's lazy. <laughs> it's lazy and it's sensationalist. Yes. A it, lot of the times in in Game of Thrones, it, it, it's sort of, um, you know, it, it's a really cheap, ugly way to... To raise the stakes, I mean, in a, in a show where there's just so many awful things happening anyway, it's just it's it's unnecessarily ugly at times. Yeah. And instead of finding a a a richer way to provide a character with some sort of motivation, or or some sort of longer arc, it's it's a it's a really ugly cheat. Yeah, exactly. And but I don't I don't see that with Penelope Ferris's movies. No. I, I th- you know, and obviously, you know, we talked about Roger Corman saying, like, you need to put this in here. And in the commentary track, she talks about, well, yeah, Roger said this, but I thought this was ugly, you know, and maybe we linger on her too long, even though she's naked. And maybe that's the part that I, I wouldn't do now. But I still stand behind the intent of the scene, which is to show that these people, they're this group of people that are perpetrating this bad behavior. So... Complex stuff there, Penelope Spears. Yeah, it is. It is. It's really complex, and it's proven more than thirty <laughs> years later to still be a conversation that we're having. Where is that line between exposition and exploitation? Sure. Sort of, um, what's the role of of, a, of an artist in in sort of shepherding that conversation? Things are even more complicated for her because she left the industry because, in a way, she dealt with that herself of being told you have to do X, Y, and Z. And when she failed, that was it for her. And and let's let's let, and like and fail is not an indictment of no. of her. I mean, the the that movie Senseless she was doing with the Weinsteins was something that, you know, it seems like they were just changing what they wanted constantly. And at the end of the day, they yeah. were like, fuck you, it's our money. And she's like, well, I can't really argue with that. Failure is her word though, because she's saying like if a movie wasn't successful financially. And she's talks about repeatedly how a lot of male directors, you know, and I think she she literally name drops Oliver Stone getting into like a car crash, having all these bombs, and then it's fine to continue making movies. If you're a woman in this business and you have a movie that is not as successful as they wanted it to be, which was which was with uh, Marlon Wayans and David Spade, then that movie didn't do as much business as the rest of them, then it's over with, okay? Like a guy in this business, a man in this business, can can make flop after flop after flop and still get a gig. And Wayne's World made like $200 million. Yeah. She made uh, three uh, thoughtful documentaries. Uh, it's just, it's, I'm just thinking of, of, of male directors who have just like, uh, you know, got up to the plate and struck out countless times. What about actors? Like, Look at Ryan Reynolds. Everyone's like, oh, Deadpool's a big success. How many failures did that dude have? <laughs> yeah, he's had so many failures. I mean, how many of those 
fucking awful uh, parody movies. There's <laughs> two guys. Yeah. Um, I mean, they made a dozen of them. Yeah. I think they made a lot of money. Did they make a lot of money, or they were they just they made enough cheap money. enough that they made enough? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And that's and that's you know to <laughs> to and here we are full circle talking about box office dollars <laughs> after we were complaining about how everybody talks about box office dollars but you know not having people like Penelope Spheris engaged in you know maybe pursuing the the stuff they want to do that they know they can do well I don't know maybe that's one of the reasons why there's no mid-budget adult movies yeah you know what I mean yeah well so when she did Wayne's World that was the most successful movie uh, financially ever directed by a woman. Can you guess what it beat out? Hmm. We've covered it already. Pet Cemetery? Yeah. No. Yeah, highest grossing uh, movie directed by a woman. Wow. And then Wayne's World beat that. So, but that's a that's a substantial gap. And last year, what uh, in terms of time or money? Yeah, f- five years, right? Five or more. Uh, and last year. Out of all the movies directed, four percent were directed by women. I, it's just not enough, and so you know that's part of the point is, of talking about Penelope Spheris is because you know we don't we can't make movies, uh, we can't hire uh, women directors, but we can probably fill in our pop culture blank spaces by watching more movies directed by women. So let's just briefly talk about some movies that were released in 1983s to, to give uh, Suburbia some context. Sure. Um, obviously, the big movie of that year was uh, Return of the Jedi. A lot of overlap, a lot of similarities to Suburbia. Mm-hmm. Whiny, entitled kids that are on the fringe. Wait, wait. <laughs> I was wait. comparing Luke to the punk rockers. Oh, but. okay. <laughs> Luke was a whiny and entitled one. Yeah, gotcha. yeah. Or Salacious Crumb has a lot of overlap with Flea. With Flea, yeah, yeah. I was going to say. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, and there's uh, Jabba eats the... Like a rat-like thing, right? Oh yeah, he eats. There's like a frog yeah. in his hookah or something. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but also that year was um, risky business. I, I mean, that's what teen movies were like in 1983. Uh, the Outsiders, which is another kind of teen movie, that's probably a little more. I don't want to say broader, but it's definitely more. Uh, I think it's probably mannered. more. What's that? More mannered in its filming and stylistic, maybe. Yeah, probably more acceptable in that. Yeah, I think. Because that's a movie set in what the fifties or yeah. yeah yeah so I think at that point everyone's got a bit of nostalgia and rose colored glasses and can sort of yeah easily imagine themselves sure. as a Christmas story came out that year uh, Rumble Fish which is another Coppola movie mm-hmm. about teens Mister um, Mom <laughs> Psycho Two I never saw any of the Psycho sequels Psycho Two is surprisingly interesting really yeah. why uh, well it's filmed well. I just actually watched two and three recently, uh, and there's some some some. It, they, it's basically Norman gets out of uh, prison. He's rehabilitated, and there are these uh, people that are basically trying to manipulate him to get him back into prison, kind of thing. I mean, there's a big spoiler for it, but like, um, what's the character's name in the original? Marion Crane. Yeah, it's her relatives that are trying to get revenge on him. Uh, okay, but it's pretty interesting the way it does it, and and. It sets up that maybe he's hearing his mother again, but maybe he's being manipulated. The <laughs> ending doesn't work for me because it kind of retcons some interesting things from the original, but the ending of the original also has that like explainer for why he is the way he is, which right. 
uh, which you just shut it off like a few minutes before that. Um, well, that sounds cool. I mean, I kind of wish it would go. It looks great. Though. I wish it would have gone the other route to a sequel to a movie that's a singular noun where it was psychos and it was just a movie <laughs> that had dozens of Normans running around. <laughs> like cloned versions of him? Like, doesn't matter. Okay. Just, uh, and, you know, yeah. and Sigourney Weaver's there. Sure. Uh, the aforementioned Sleepaway Camp came out that year. Yentl by uh, Barbara Streisand. Um, are you on a first name basis with uh, Barbara Streisand? Babs. Babs. Babs yeah. Uh, Cujo, which is another Stephen King movie, came mm-hmm. out that year. Jaws 3. Oh, Jaws 3 is a particularly bad one. Yeah. Krull, Monty Python on the Meaning of Life. That one's all right. Uh, Superman 3. Also bad. <laughs> also bad, yeah. Uh, the Hunger. It's a pretty decent- Oh, um, the vampire movie. Tony Scott movie. Yeah, I like that movie a Catherine lot. Catherine Deneuve and uh, David Bowie mm-hmm. and Susan Sarandon. Ho, ho, ho. Yeah, that's a, getting steamy in here. Yeah, I like that one a lot. I uh, I roped some friends into watching that one. That's pretty it's cool. Like, it was October, I think. We were looking for a scary movie to watch, and I was like, yeah. oh, I heard this is good, and they hated it, Aww. and I was super into it. Yeah, but, it's really stylistic. Yeah. Really weird. I like Tony Scott. I Yeah, he's interesting. Yeah. I uh, I did a double header of Top Gun and Days of Thunder once. Oh. It was exhausting. I'm sure. And uh, I didn't realize Top Gun didn't have a war in it. No. I was like, what the hell are they doing? Training. <laughs> so dumb. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> also, too, my favorites, Christine, third Stephen King adaptation of that's that John year. Carpenter, right? That's John Carpenter, yep. And Videodrome by David Ooh, Cronenberg. yeah, that's great. Yeah, good stuff. So, Maybe Harry is awesome in that. Yeah, so it's an interesting year, a lot of good stuff. Oh, Dead Zone, four. That's another Cronenberg movie, four adaptations. That's a, you mean Stephen King? Stephen King. Yeah, but, but also Cronenberg. Cronenberg. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, and Scarface came out that year. Also Cronenberg. My least favorite De Palma, one of my favorite directors of all time. What if Cronenberg did Scarface? Oh, that'd be weird. Would it get to a point where he, like, he did so much coke that there was yeah. like, a weird like body horror special effect? Yeah, something's just kind of like, like, like it's like something's growing out of his nostril. It just starts twitching and then like eating yeah. people. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Get on it, David. <laughs> I thought you were going to say Hollywood. No. Get on it, Hollywood. And then I was like, are you going to say get out, get on it, David Hollywood? I'm like, David who's, Hollywood. who's David Hollywood? That's what Cronenberg's friends called him on the set of <laughs> The Fly. Dead Ringers. <laughs> <laughs> Dead Ringers. Oh, that's a good one. Have you seen Dead Ringers? I have. This is just devolved into like, this is good. This is bad. This blah, is good. Blah, 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 blah. So if someone was a fan of Suburbia, where would you recommend them to go next? You know, so this is one I've only seen once. And I know that people love it. Suburbia felt a lot like it. Uh, Repo Man. Oh, yeah. Repo Man's great. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it definitely made me want to revisit Repo Man. Um, yeah. Alex Cox. Mm-hmm. Yep. With um, Charlie Sheen. Emilio Estevez. No, Emilio Estevez. His brother. Yeah. And um, uh, Harry Dean Stanton. The late great? Late great Harry Dean Stanton. I'm going to recommend a movie called Smithereens. Have you heard of this? No. It's from 1982. It's directed by Susan Seidelman, uh, starring Susan Berman, and she's this kind of punk rock transient that's kind of like mooching off of people and punk rockers. So it's in the punk rock scene in New York City, and she's kind of going from couch to couch and going to punk rock shows and trying to make it, in quotes, what that means it remains to be seen because she claims to have like this sort of like something to offer but she's basically just keeps has like this weird parasitic relationship with people 
it's a great performance uh, by Susan Berman. She's hasn't really acted aside from this movie, um, especially because it's so hard to like this character. <laughs> she does a really good job of making her this New York punk brat, but it's a great kind of same vein as, as Suburbia with a lot of punk rock stuff and a lot of, lot of overlap. It's good, really good. So what are we talking about next time? Next time we're talking about the Venture Brothers. Nice. Yeah, I'm a big fan of of this show. Mm-hmm. I know you're watching through it now. Yes. Yeah. I've had a few people ask, like, "Wow, you you're watching a lot of stuff for this podcast." Just, well, we kind of plan in advance, so I've been watching Venture Brothers for like a month and a half now. So I'm not like overdoing it. I I am getting better about not doing what I used to do in high school. <laughs> and, and I'm like, oh shit, I got to watch <laughs> eight hours of television in two days. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm excited to talk about it. There's a lot of overlap from that and Fantastic Four. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. yeah and Which I, surprised me because I knew its reference point was mostly Johnny Quest. I didn't realize it was mostly like a superhero show. Mm-hmm. This whole league of crazy super villains and a lot of weird stuff. Yeah, and, and I think... As I was reading Fantastic Four uh, for our, our last episode, that was all I could think about too, and I'm I'm glad that uh, glad yeah. that it's it's scratching that itch for you. We, we should come up with some sort of ending catchphrase. Let's audition some ending catchphrases. Later, skater. <laughs> no, I think that's perfect. Oh, Let's great. do it in unison. Later, skater. Oh wait. Did you I say forget, gator? I, I forgot my own line. Did you say gator? I did say gator. I kind of like that better. Later. Can we combine them? Skater? Later, skater? <laughs> it's, 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 a, it's an alligator on, on- How do you uh, say skater? Skater. S-G-A-T-O-R. It's, skater. It's an alligator on rollerblades. All right, let's do it. Later, skater. Nope. Together. All right, let's get a new one. Nope. We're scrapping that. Okay. It's garbage. That one's bad. Um- so long, farewell, <laughs> Avita, Avita, say good night. Good night. I hate this song. <laughs> Let's pick another one. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> I think that's it. <laughs> I think we nailed it. <laughs> All right, that's, that's fine. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to another episode of What Did We Miss? If you like that, you can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at What Did We Miss? You can also email us at whatdidwemisspod at gmail.com. And thanks, as always, to What Cheer Writers Club in downtown Providence, where we record our episodes. You can follow them on Twitter and Instagram at Club, and you can find out more about them on their website at whatcheerclub.org.